0: right, everybody. It's Acquisitions Anonymous time, Halloween edition. Everybody's got their costumes on. We're all dressed as uh, business acquirers, it, it appears. Yeah, we've got our business acquirer costumes on. I'm Michael Girdley. Uh I'm here with Mills and Bill again, and we are going to do what we do every week, which is talk about two businesses that are for sale. So very excited to do that. Good morning to both you guys. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Well, hey, first uh, first, two firsts today. So, first, number one is we're going to talk first about a listener-submitted business. So, um, we're very excited about this and we hope that more of you do submit things for us to talk about. And then the other first is I brought both deals today. So, uh, Girdley, one, you guys, zero. (laughs) All right. Okay. So, first one I have, this is going to be kept anonymous, but we'll talk about it. So, this one is uh, a listener's, the listener-submitted one. So it's a design-as-a-service business focused mostly on tech startups. And they do everything from branding, product design, sales and marketing, collateral, all that kind of stuff. They charge on a month-to-month basis. Uh, the average client stays for three to four months and pays them a, a fixed fee. So if you go look at their website, it's like, pay us X thousand dollars per month and it's all you can eat. They basically you know, they handle all of the work internally and then they they outsource it to five full-time designers that are based internationally. Right now, as of the most current month, they're costing about 34000 a month. Um, they have no CAC. They have been doing no paid marketing, no paid spend. Uh, all growth is through referrals at this point. Uh, and so because of that, and some other stuff that's interesting, gross margins are huge for them. They're targeting 75 to 80% earlier this year, though that's kind of gone down a bit in the past few months. Uh, and then they see themselves kind of sticking in this 50 to 60% range. Uh, and they're a relatively new business. They've been in operation for a little over a year and a half, but they are uh, looking to get out and um, thinking about how to think about selling the business. In terms of finances, uh, they're growing really quickly. So they've doubled doubled plus in the past four months. We only actually got finances through March of this year where they were kind of in the 40 to 45K a month uh, revenue. And then they ended September at 95. um, And then I think they had a big month in October because... You know what I said earlier is that they're at 150k a month run rate. Interestingly enough, if you look at the finances, Cogs went way up in September. Um, they were running, you know, kind of in the 20 to 30 percent cost of goods sold uh, earlier in the year, and they went way up in September. And and I have to look at what exactly that number was, but it was it was closer to 40 percent, 35 percent. Also, if you look at the finances, the owners are not paying themselves. So. There is some there is some optimism in the finances the way they they look because uh, I don't see where the people that are actually running the business uh, have been paying themselves other than from profits which are huge because uh, they're running at fifty to sixty percent EBITDA which is basically fifty to sixty percent free cash flow on this business so uh, has turned out to be a great little business for them uh, and and pretty exciting and um, you know I know we looked at this one beforehand guys so I know there's some questions on it. But also, I will pause there in case I did a bad job of explaining anything, or something comes to mind.
1: Uh, maybe I'll just add: we use businesses like this at you know at my company, Elements Brands. Uh, it's essentially design as a service. Um, so you pay them like a monthly retainer, and you get almost like all-you-can-eat design. Hey, make this Facebook ad. Hey, you know I need this graphic for my website, uh, etc. We don't use these guys. We use one of their competitors we have to supplement our in-house graphic design folks. Yep. So this is a market that I wouldn't say I know it super well, but I'm a customer of it. One thing that immediately you know, I ask about this is, how is this different? You know There are a ton of competitors here. I mean, you can go on Upwork and post, hey, I need a logo, and you get a million bids for 50 bucks. And I know this is probably a level of quality above that, but there's a lot of the supply of graphic design in the world. There is a lot of it. And I know there's also a lot of demand. So I know they're, they're not trying here to... to I really want to know, you know, how is this different? Like How do we win deals? you know, why does, why do people pick this design firm over other design firms? Uh, and it might be, you know, that maybe they have some just, you know, this is a classic, it's big market, there's lots of players, it's no problem, we'll just carve out a little bit and it's a nice little business. And the other thing I, I noticed about this business is they said the average client three to four months. Yeah. So on one hand, it's nice that you've got them on this kind of fixed retainer where they pay monthly, but also they're leaving every three to four months. Like if you're churning your entire customer base every three to four months, I wouldn't say, like, that's basically product, right? I mean, that's not really that different. Like, I, it's not, you can't even say it's annual recurring revenue if they don't even stick around for a year. Yep. So it, it seems to me, and, and not think I'm buying an annuity year when really I'm buying a sales engine. You know, like you got to sell a new design service every day to keep yeah. this business running.
0: Well, yeah. And I, I think I heard two questions from you bill like do you, do we think about this as a recurring revenue business and it it sounds like at least what we're seeing now it's no right because there's churn built into these customers and also the second thing i, I think what you asked was how's it differentiated like what is the unique niche that they own they do tend to do these west coast tech startups a lot but it looks like their differentiator at this point is basically uh, we're We're cooler and hipper, and we talk like you, Mr. West Coast tech startup, that's of, of a certain size. but I, I don't see anything that's not relatively commoditized.
2: Well, and I, I'm thinking from the from the customer' standpoint, right? They reference being a conduit, you know, between startup ecosystems and international talent and to me the risk right if if i'm a if i'm a customer the risk of doing it on my own and just going to upwork is that i may lose out on some kind of continuity of branding or design you know if i need a logo i need a product roadmap visualization i need maybe prototype mockups or something along those lines if i want there to be continuity in branding then this may be I guess at least I would hope, right? I'm I'm buying this because I want I want there to be kind of a seamlessness. I don't want it to just look like I've had five different people design five different pieces of collateral.
0: Yeah, I would guess underlying it all, they most likely would have a repository of what they build for people and design guides and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that has to be that has to be part of the mo, and also why it would be superior to a, a Fiverr or a. Um, an upwork for that kind of reason. I mean, when I use Fiverr or upwork for this kind of stuff, the first thing I do is hire somebody to build a design guide. So, so they want to hire the next person that they won't give me something that looks totally different. What
2: you know, I think probably a lot of the value here is that we had some correspondence with this user who submitted this and were able to ask some questions. And the niche really is that they they have gone viral, so to speak, within a Within a very specific incubator, and and the fact that that they kind of have earned some trust and credibility, that's worth a lot, right? So it's interesting because we as buyers look at this and go, "Man, this churn is really scary." And the seller is saying, "I get it, right? But we've been okay. We're not paying for any customer acquisition costs. We're getting good repeat business, and you know." I think probably you know the the price right per month for an all you can eat buffet of design to me my, my first instinct is is somebody going to exploit that right if if you're paying $4000 a month for all you can eat design work are some people actually only getting $2000 a month of value out of it and some people are getting $15000 a month out of it and and figuring out can that price actually remain durable over a long period of time or are you going to get hosed
0: Yeah. Well, it it does come back, I think, to Bill's question of what is the competitive advantage of this business at this point? And it's that the owner is deeply ingrained in this community where he's able to go back to the well repeatedly and get more business.
1: Well, in general, like it seems like, as you said, Michael, part of their moat is that they're cool a little bit, right? And that is a kind of a scary moat for me because nothing stays cool forever. Uh, nobody stays cool forever. Nothing stays cool forever. So if this business is suddenly not cool, I feel like you need another way to win deals besides just being cool. And, and you know, with the other thing that's interesting about this is I wonder if you're kind of, your clients are always kind of tweeners. Either they're, you know, they're not big enough to have full time graphic design in house, you know, or they just have project work that's overflowing from their in house graphic designer. So they're either constantly outgrowing you and hiring their own designers, or constantly going out of business. And either way, they're churning. And I wonder if that's part of what's leading to some of the churn. Because uh, I mean, every three to four months, that's that's brutal churn. I mean, I I get that. That's basically selling them a project and then financing it over three to four months. You know, that's not really a design membership. So I would be thinking about, you know, maybe they. How could I change my client mix to get things? You know, clients who have more of a consistent need for this how do I position my business so those clients say, oh, this is a good permanent augmentation to my team of graphic designers or whatever it might be. Otherwise, like this is a glorified Upwork contractor in some ways. And I'm being a little harsh by saying that, but it's, it's only been around for a year and a half. Like, How much brand value is there, really?
2: Yep. Yep. See, though, I, I would almost take the opposite approach, Bill, because I think with what you're saying, it makes perfect sense if you want to grow and become a traditional agency. Right? Because then you're looking for, you know, longer duration retainers, you're looking for stickier client relationships. And to me, I don't want to be an agency, right? I don't want to own an agency or compete with them. I think this is kind of an underhanded way in in a good sense, right? It's a very kind of, to me, scrappy way to basically be an alternative service to an agency. Like, why would I go hire an agency for $4,000 a month with a 12-year contract when I could kind of game it, right, and use these guys? And I think it, the risks, right, are still there, right? The, the, the churn is real. But if you were the right person, and, and the current owner is the right person, to be able to kind of be close to the well, like we've said, I think you could make this work, you know, and, and basically keep this keep the sales Up, right? Keep keep the inbound new clients coming because it's a nice alternative to an agency.
1: True, fair. Um, Yeah. One other thing I noticed about this business I alluded to earlier, it's a year and a half old. Uh, It's growing rapidly, as Michael mentioned at the top of the call. So, my huge question here is why are you selling this business, right? You know, you've only been at it for a year and a half. Like, you can't tell me you're burned out. Um, It's growing like crazy, meaning it's worth more every single month. The margins are great. It's putting a ton of money in your pocket. Why are you selling this business? This puts, this puts all of my antenna up that the founder does not think this is sustainable and is trying to sell at the top. Short-lived business, rapid growth, like these are not the businesses you sell,
0: typically. Yeah. It is interesting. You do see there's this weird class of sellers that are Silicon Valley people and West Coast people. That are surrounded by the world of Uber and all this stuff, and they're sitting in a diamond mine trying to figure out why the hell they're not in a platinum mine. Like I see that 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 happens a lot out in the West Coast, and to some extent in New York as well, where a lot of these type of businesses are. And you know, you want to shake them up and be like, "Do you know how rare a diamond mine is? Like you don't just drive your clown oh. car into that like on a regular basis. Like they're really rare, so you should you should love what you got." Uh, and go from there. So, but it's 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 surprisingly common.
1: Yeah, there is also another class of seller who starts businesses and sells them every you know eighteen to twenty four months. Yep, um, you see it a lot on Amazon. You see a lot of folks who will spin up an Amazon brand, and they'll as soon as it hits you know eighteen months of financials, they hire a broker and they take it to market. Um, and then you you ask them, and they find out they've done it three times before, and then you ask. Uh, well, how did the other ones do after you sold it? And they conspicuously have no idea or can't remember or don't stay in touch with the buyer. So, like any of, any of these things that are just only a year and a half old, I just immediately go, why are you selling? Yeah. You know, and are you trying to sell high? Are you, are you looking for a bag holder?
2: Makes total sense. I was hoping you were going to bring that up, Bill, because to me, that, that's the area, the, specifically the FBA businesses. That's where I see these quick kind of turns most. And and you're right. It's just, you know, hey, look, we started a brand, we stood something up, we found a way to source product, and then we threw a ton of money at customer acquisition and look how big our revenue's gotten. You know, and I mean, good for them in one sense that they were able to spend something up. But you're right. It does kind of make you call into question, okay, why, you know, why am I the lucky one? Right? Why am I on the receiving end of this transaction? And what do you know that I don't know?
1: Yeah. And a lot of times with these short businesses, it's possible, especially on Amazon or on a Google, maybe they've found a results page, a keyword or stuff or a you know an advertising niche that they're able to exploit. You know, maybe they've actually found something new. But I will tell you what, the market is pretty damn efficient in the yep. long run. Yep. Um, so eventually the competition is gonna come flooding in. Like if you're making a ton of money on a certain keyword, someone's gonna figure it out. And then the competition shows up. And, you know, you don't want to be into it for Forex trailing EBITDA when the competition shows up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, let's. Uh, it, it sounds like in conclusion, we really like this business and we're totally confused why the seller would consider selling it. They should just buy themselves a slightly nicer Ferrari than they're already buying for themselves. And maybe that'll make them have more patience. but great submittal thank you so much for sending that in dear listener uh and if you have if you're a broker if you're a principal or whatever we would love to talk about your deal and uh hopefully we did a great job of protecting the anonymity uh that this person asked for so very cool all right let's move on to deal number two this is a fun one and also way outside of my wheelhouse so which also makes me question why the broker was sending it to me but it's all good so uh, this is a media business. It's owned by a person who's a serial entrepreneur uh, who came from kind of the corporate finance stuff. So he set up a business basically that he could run as a side hustle. He's done kind of what you talked about, Bill, with this serial kind of fix and flip or start and flip kind of MO. So he purchased a single website called uh, HoustonOnTheCheap.com in early 2018. Uh, at the time, it was producing 68,000 a year. Uh, in gross revenue. Two years later, this guy has built up the business a bit. He's expanded into a number of different verticals. He brought each of these properties out as as one. So by then, he's expanded throughout Texas. So he's got Houston, San Antonio, Austin, I think Dallas, and then there's one in Houston and one in uh, Boston. And he's taken the business from sixty-eight thousand to pre-COVID at being over four hundred and fifty thousand uh, in gross revenue from those five cities. So the four in Texas and the one in Boston. And he's done some good stuff. Ready? Right? He, he put some things in place to to kind of grow the business. We'll dig into how he did that. But well, spoiler alert: he mostly signed up a bunch of affiliate marketing and SEO type stuff. And that's what these that's how these sites mostly make their money. They do have some paid sponsorship, but on top of that. You know, mostly it's an affiliate affiliate marketing kind of uh, display ad type situation. So, so he runs it pretty much hands-off. He's got a handful of editors that write SEO-optimized stuff. So he ends up, uh, say, on this Houston on the Cheap thing. They rank very highly for people searching for the uh, experience of how to go to the Houston uh, Livestock Show and Rodeo and that sort of thing. So the broker is described this business very interestingly. I guess you guys, uh, hopefully I'll look at your faces. Well, Bill's camera's off, but Mills is smiling. And it's literally, the thing is written like a Hemingway novel uh, in terms of the description. Pretty fun. Just all over this is very co- colorful language about how the the heroic staff that owns this has managed to keep it afloat and now growing despite what's going on with COVID. He claims they were on, on track to clear 400,000 in net earnings this year. And they had gone out to market in February to try to sell the business for 1.25 million, which is three and a half to four times annual net earnings, that would be comparable to other media sites. They got an offer for 1.1 million. in April, then COVID came. That thing disappeared. Then they have recently gone back out at 9:25, and then I got an email yesterday that they have once again lowered the price to 725. Uh, so now they are selling at 725, kind of post-COVID. Pulling up the financials, it's been an interesting 2020 for them. If you look at kind of where their revenue comes from, they basically get it from a couple different things. So uh, ticket sales through uh, a deal called Gold Star was one of their biggest revenue sources before COVID. Post-COVID it disappeared. Uh, and then it appears they've mostly gone down the path of monetizing around affiliate marketing. So click-throughs and that sort of thing. So if you look at their content, it's a lot of that content that's like, what is the best ergonomic chair for me to buy? Well, thank you very much, local Houston website for that kind of information that you're trying to get click-throughs to an affiliate marketing platform. Um, and so September ba- bounced back. Uh, they were profitable in the amount of 25000 brought in revenue of... Running revenue of about 36000 if my math is right. So, very high profitable thing, uh, mostly because he's got a bunch of freelancers and his sales commissions are paid to a stay at home mom who is his only sales rep, who generally is bringing in, it looks like about six or seven grand a month in net in new advertising. So, I will pause there. It looks like, and it's short, short, we've got a, a media business focused on the emerging Texas market that can be run independently. Uh, highly dependent upon affiliate marketing that can be run uh, as a sideline. So what did I miss? What What questions do you guys have about this one? Okay. So I, I like the
2: fact that it's local media or hyper-local media. I mean, any niche media is really interesting, right? I mean, just this morning, we're recording. And just this morning or, or last night, it got announced that Morning Brew is getting acquired. So niche media... I think has a really, really strong pull. And it's obvious that it's on a lot of people's radar. To me, I can't really figure out how they're pitching this thing, right? They're saying, look, own the audience. There's 6 million uh, page views here or unique visitors. And and look, you can own this audience for less than the cost of building it. To me, I, I don't like the idea that the audience is portable, right? If I've kind of signed up... and it, And they have they're doing the right things. Like they've got uh, a pretty big email list. They've got what looks like a good social media following, not sure about their engagement. But if I've signed up, right, to get local uh, Houston news, right? And then all of a sudden you're pushing me, you know, I don't know, left-wing or right-wing politics, right? Because that's one of the things they say is, hey, if you're, if you're you know, a political action group, come, come by this audience, right? Six million Texas eyeballs is really valuable. Uh, or, or if you're, uh, you know, an energy business and you really want, you know, to to just acquire this audience for the cost, you know, for less than the cost of building it, I, I just that to me is not. There's there's no way that would work, right? You're gonna find engagement falling off the map. There are some weird red flags to me about this one. One is that in general, when I kind of look at a deal that is, I don't know, I don't know how I would describe this, and you guys tell me if you get the same vibe, but. In essence, the intermediary has kind of already thought of everything, right? They've almost presupposed any kind of question, any kind of contradiction. They're not really giving me the space to make informed decisions or ask kind of questions about the deal. It's like, before the question can get out of my mouth, they're already answering it. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you can expand nationally. Here's how you can hire, commission salespeople, instead of just this one person. To me, I don't like when the deal is already so baked. Another is the fact that they give this is, I guess, good and bad. They give this whole kind of description, right, of the deal background. Here's when we first listed it. Here's how much it was listed for. Here's how we've reduced the price. We've gotten offers at this range. They couldn't put together funding. All that, to me, it's really helpful for me as a buyer. I don't know if I were the intermediary if I would do that, right? I don't know if I would share all that information. We started at 1.2 million and now we're, you know, almost half that.
0: Uh I'm sorry to interrupt but I just noticed something funny about exactly what you're talking about. This the asking price has been such a falling knife that on their asking price slide they have the word asking price written twice and in one point they have it say 900,000 USD and then immediately next to it it says 850,000. So like in the span of a half an inch on the slide they drop the price $50,000. Yeah, yeah. In
1: fact, Michael, you also misread your email. It's now asking six seventy five. Oh. so one point two to six seventy five, and they say we work with three separate buyers since June, and we're no longer entertaining SBA bank loan based offers or any earn out offers because everyone has failed to secure their outside financing. We're only accepting cash offers, and I go. Clearly, these people know something I don't yet know. Right? Like it is has failed to get underwritten by three separate banks. You know, all three buyers have bailed. The guy only—he's not willing to take any risk on an earnout. As a result, and it's an all-cash offer, and they've cut the price in half. Right? What is going on here? Uh,
0: it is an interesting thing as a seller, and one of the things I've kind of learned: like you think that if you somebody drops out of a deal in diligence, that the next time around they're not, the next person is not going to find the same stuff. And I've just learned the hard way. You just assume they're going to find it and you give them all the diligence materials that the previous group had. Like you're just like, okay, well, here's, here's what caused the other people to have a problem with it and it ended up walking away and just, just not there. So there's some, there's some closeted secrets going on here. I totally agree with you. Another red flag to
2: me is that in the summary, it mentions kind of as an additional perk that the owner's getting about $20,000 a year in freebies you know, uh, haircuts, uh, work on his car. It lists some different things, basically in exchange for bartering the services to me, my, my, you know, alarms are just blaring. I'm going, man, if this is happening, right. And it's well within the owner's prerogative to do this, but if this is happening, what else is happening? That's kind of off books. So so that that one to me is a big red flag. Also, I don't, this is, I'm probably about to step in it because that the intermediary sent us this deal, but in the signature line of his email, he touts that he has a 100% closing success rate. And I'm thinking, if you cut the price right by 50% or more, of course, you're going to have a 100% success rate, right? If the price gets low enough, somebody will buy it. I just think that's a little bit of an odd thing to, to tout if you're the intermediary.
1: I will say on the plus side for this deal, and this is not something I have inside information on, but there's a business here in Charlotte uh, called the Charlotte Agenda who is a sterling example of what these guys are trying to do, done extremely well. Um, and they built it on the back of a newsletter uh, and they hired some real journalists. They do local, local media and they are killing it, killing it. Um, like a handful of employees, hugely profitable. The guy that founded it is, is doing fantastically well. Uh, and it's read by everybody, you know, under 35 in sure. killed it. Um, so, this model can absolutely work. Although, what's interesting is they tried to expand to other cities in North Carolina and failed and pulled back. So, they're killing it in Charlotte, but couldn't make it work uh, even just down the road. So, I wonder what it is about local media that's hard to replicate uh, even in the same state. So, if you lived in one of these towns and if you really enjoyed you know, eating at all the latest restaurants and doing all the things, I think this could be a phenomenal lifestyle business. I mean, just you would have you would be the king of the town, right? Everybody wants to be covered by you and access your audience, etc. But I think you got to want that, and you got to be willing to execute well and sell partnerships to real local businesses that want those eyeballs uh, and actually live in live in this business. Yep, but. You know, if you're out of town, you think this is a cash cow, uh, like listeners can, or watchers, readers can smell that, I think, from a, a mile away.
0: Yeah, I think that ties back to this like owner personality fit that we've talked about before. Like, I would want to look at this business if I was that person who like was in every single club and everybody loved me and, my fun for me was spending 20 minutes talking to the guys at the local auto shop. Like if that's your shtick and that's who you are as a person that's, that's great. Cause this is a great way to monetize those kind of relationships. But if, if you're an introvert like me, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> you need that secret sauce to make this one work. Cool. All right. Any other uh, pooping on this deal or are we, we good to wrap it up for today?
1: <laughs> I yeah, can right? wrap it up.
2: What, what just one thing that, that, to me was kind of a pet peeve, right, is the difference between uh, run rate and last 12 months. I feel like this is something that, you know, you would would realize right at some point, but they're saying, hey, look, we have a $360,000 a year, you know, net run rate. But the actual last twelve months, because of COVID, and they take ownership. Hey, COVID was bad, but last twelve months is two hundred and forty thousand dollars. And so, you know, if they're saying, "Hey, look, pay us a multiple of run rate versus a multiple of last twelve month," that's that's a big it's a big difference, right? And that's just something to look out for.
1: Yep, and I'll, I'll even extend that much further. Some further, I occasionally see people asking for a multiple of average last three years. Ebitda, it's just amazing that the different things buyers, these different numbers, buyers will try to multiply by their multiplier. Yep. You know, and you go it, as you said, Mills. Like the last average of the last three years is not relevant. It's declined every year. You know, <laughs> like wh- why am I paying? You? Like how does that make any sense? Uh, like if, if you want to multiply that, like I'll give you one X average last three years. Yep.
2: Well, and and that happens all the time, right? Because at some point the owner is going to ask what multiple are you going to pay me right and it's like well i can pay you a 28 times multiple of something right but let me let me define what the multiple is based off of and so everybody you know everybody talks about you know at the country club i got you know a 6 times multiple i got a 10 times multiple whatever it's like you got to really press on that and figure out what
1: exactly are you multiplying because not not all
2: multipliers are created equal
1: yes and it's important when you're negotiating with the seller i found to figure out what they care about. You know, as you said, Mills, some guys care about getting the highest multiple uh, and they're really fixed on multiple. And in, in doing that, they're taking their eyeball off the actually the final selling price, which sounds insane, yeah. but it, yeah. it happens a lot. People are much more focused on the multiple. And so if I find a seller that really wants 5X EBITDA, I go, that's fine. And I just work on what is EBITDA, right? And, you know, you really scrutinize their ad backs, and and, you, you know, you really push on that. Or you, you know, if it's down recently, you say I got to annualize the last three months where it's been down. Or if it's been up, you say full trailing twelve. We're not annualizing anything. So you got to, when you're negotiating, figure out what the seller cares about and try to give that to them and move the other letters.
0: All right, guys, great job today. Ten out of ten. Would have podcasted again with both of you. Um, <laughs> gotten great listener feedback, and we love hearing from everybody. Uh, I think that's the thing. We're getting like four or five hundred listens per episode pretty nuts right i love it i guess we'll keep running our
1: mouths
0: we'll keep going and yeah some of my friends have started listening and they they think it's great so i've gotten a lot of good feedback so good job by you guys and uh, i learned a lot again today so thank you very much we'll catch you next time